This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 2nd, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So there was a lot of anxiety about Trump's chances two weeks ago. We even had a hotline on that theme. Hello, Trump anxiety hotline. Have you seen the new polls? Yeah, let's not replay the whole thing. The bottom line was... Anytime one candidate has a convention and one doesn't, the candidate that had a convention should do better. That's what I was trying to tell everyone who was calling into the Trump anxiety hotline. Now, we're post-DNC and polls are coming in and it turns out that Hillary has more than made up the ground that she lost to Trump and the Republican National Convention. So it's time to exhale, right? Oh no, let's hyperventilate. But to the other degree... It seems that Hillary is safely ahead, so maybe, maybe Trump will drop out. Here's Mike Murphy from his podcast yesterday. An idea I've had for a few months, and I've said a few times publicly to some ridicule, still could hold water. Namely, that Trump is a powder, and he's a guy who's built this phony brand based on winning. All those things are in jeopardy if he has week after week after week of bad polling. I don't think it's impossible that he'll pull the plug. He'll just make up some excuse about a conspiracy is out to get him or Reince Priebus didn't make the right phone call or whatever it is. He'll blame the party. He'll blame anybody but himself. And he'll just drop out of the race. Mike Murphy is a Republican political consultant. Josh Marshall is a liberal blogger at Talking Points Memo. And he is wondering the exact same thing. In a series of tweets, he says... If the race continues on its current trajectory, Trump may be looking at a situation like this by September. Sure, he could drop out to avoid humiliation, but he wouldn't be avoiding it by much. He'd be the only major candidate ever to simply put up and leave the race because he's facing defeat. He'd become the biggest loser in any way in American history, though, of course, he'd try to spin it. The key point is that this is someone who has virtually no capacity to handle or tolerate loss or humiliation. Now, neither Josh Marshall nor Mike Murphy is actually saying that a Trump dropout will happen, and the man certainly is erratic, but come on, why do we always embrace the other extreme so readily? The boat seemed to be taking on water, seemed to be capsizing to one side, and as soon as we bail it out, boom, we slosh around from port to starboard, imagining this far-fetched improbability. Guess the obvious answer is because Trump upends everything we know and he is ill-informed, thin-skinned, and erratic. But that doesn't mean he'll, you know, pick a fight with a Gold Star military family or kick a baby out of a rally or blame sexual harassment on a woman's weakness. Oh, wait, he did all of that today. And that brings me to the spiel where that will be addressed. But first, she was the steering force behind such Amy Schumer sketches as women who can't take compliments, natural birthing one-upsmanship, and O-Nutter's The Chain Restaurant for Women. Okay, she's the head writer of Inside Amy Schumer. She runs the ship. She oversaw everything. She's a stand-up comic, and now an essayist, Jesse Klein, is here.
episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Jesse Klein is the head writer of Inside Amy Schumer. She is the author of the new memoir, eh, collection of essays, things, memoirish. You'll grow out of it. And she's a self-described poodle. Sorry, she's a self-described oh, wolf. Very much not a, wolf. a poodle. She's a she's a wolf. How dare you, I sir. think she has hybrid labradoodle tendencies, though, and we'll get into that. Okay, we'll get there. Oh, hi, Jesse. How oh, hi. You? It's so nice to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So the poodle wolf thing is great because it gives me uh, a license to just talk about women's looks with you. <laughs> well, <laughs> here's the thing. So explain what it is first. Okay. Yeah. I, I wrote a chapter called Poodle and Wolf. It's basically just sort of a light metaphor for um, different women's relationships with their ability to achieve kind of the absurd female norm that we live with in our society. Right. And And, and um, the way you get at that, that very feminist ideal, is to create a taxonomy comparing women to dogs. But no, please continue. um, Well, the norm itself, I would say, is not feminist. And the feminist (laughs) thing I am trying to do is to talk about how difficult it is. Yeah, that achieving those norms for some women, I think, are they find it easier than others. And those are the poodles. But when you talk about poodles, do you speak of like the highly manicured toy poodles or the giant poodles or I mean I think a poodle's a poodle's a poodle they have different haircuts but you know a poodle's a poodle when you see one and then uh, on the other side of the metaphor is like someone like me for whom um you know, achieving that norm involves a lot of heavy lifting and struggle, and I call myself a wolf. But before you say anything else, I would just like to clarify. It's not about poodles are attractive and wolves are unattractive. It's not about looks. The essay is talking about how difficult it is to achieve that that norm of femininity in our society. And just it's, I think for many women it's harder, yes. and for some women it's easier. But wolves are beautiful and poodles are beautiful. Poodles are perhaps born into it more easily. Bred to be. <laughs> bred I don't know about the breeding, but. Dog. But uh, yeah, I just think, and that's not a judgment on them. I think there are, I've met some women who are like, yeah, I'm a poodle. And I'm like, that's great. Be proud of being a poodle. But wouldn't you say that most poodles, okay, fine. So you've met some who will embrace it. But wouldn't you say most poodles, would say you have no idea how hard it is to achieve poodledom. Yes. Uh, And I think that's kind of the spirit of the essay and hopefully the spirit of the whole book on some Mm -hmm. level is like the joke I make in the book. I don't know if it's really much of a joke, but like feeling always like uh, I was like a straight woman trapped in a straight woman's body where I was I guess what would be called a tomboy as a little girl, um, except I never grew out of it. Um, and I, all of the trappings of looking like an acceptable female in America seemed either uninteresting to me or just like a lot of work. Um, and yeah, and I, I don't know that women talk about it all that often. I mean, I'm right now I am a wolf in poodle's clothing. Like I walk, you can't see me if you're listening, uh, but I am like in a dress, a dress? and, sh- and sh- nice shoes. But uh, even if you were sitting here, what you wouldn't see is that I have on Spanx. I have on uh, a special kind of maxi pad for your armpit. Not that I'm bleeding out of my armpit, but I do sweat a lot. And really? so it keeps you from getting sweat stains. I hear they have the armpit pearls now. 
Oh, the string. Yeah. Um, you put it just in with your finger. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, I'm sure there's a ton of invented needs. But yeah, it took like, uh, this feels like it's all very tenuous and held together in a MacGyver-esque tangle. Of One strand. Gum. One yeah. strand and if you could be undone. If a breeze comes in, I'm going to just be like a, a useless pile of cups. But I want to ask you one que- two more questions about Poodle and Wolf. Because I love the idea of... You know, this taxonomy. In fact, a lot of the book is about a sort of taxonomy, this or that. But you say Jennifer Aniston, who we'd all think, oh, glamorous. It comes easy. She does these ads for whatever the makeup company is. Land? Avino. Avino, let's say. It's more body care. Okay. Moisturizer. Is it wellness? Uh, No. (laughs) Okay. So you say she's a wolf. I mean, again, this is all to be taken with a grain of salt. And let me also say— You're just throwing it out there to be controversial. I, well, I, I don't want it to be controversial. I feel like some of this has been taken out of context by a few places. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, like, the New York Post made a thing about it. I, I rely on them for context. That's odd. That they yeah, do that. yeah, never do. Uh, yeah, I love Jennifer Aniston, and I would give several toes and limbs to look like her. I think she's stunning. So the wolf thing is not about her looks. I kind of applaud her. I think she's been in some ways kind of honest about how much maintenance she does and how much exercise she does. Her hairstylist is kind of a celebrity. Um, yeah, I think she spends a lot of her time maintaining and and creating a look And obviously she'd be stunning if she didn't do anything. But I think she does a lot. And she does talk about it. So here's my other question. Do you think that there's a male version of this? Uh, No, because I don't think um, the ideal, the absurd masculine ideals in our culture don't involve that level of work. Well, I think that— You can be a real— chubbalub yeah who's a mess and in some ways that makes you more masculine than like yeah if you yeah. do a lot of maintenance you're considered feminine right I think i'm not are, saying i agree with that but i'm I saying that's the way a, it is i think there's a sort of version you're right like you could definitely there's more leeway i don't know what animals are involved i think that there's a kind of man like uh that other men would dismiss uh, a good looking man but maybe that other men would dismiss as you know too much of a pretty boy or trying too hard mm-hmm. or too obsessed with his looks but there's a, then there's another category of man who is regarded as handsome but men will say well that was honestly come by or he doesn't seem to be trying too hard i'm like sure like a it's steve a, mcqueen like a mcqueen or maybe like gronk you know, oh. a professional athlete. I think don't uh, gronk me. But guys would say, don't oh, yeah, throw gronk. me if you don't know me. Oh, I wasn't <laughs> expecting the left turn of gronk. Yeah, um, I'm a Giants fan. What do you think the animals would be? That's good. Okay, so should we leave the uh, the dog kingdom? Some. Maybe, I'm taking your lead on this. Yeah, I think it's almost the opposite. For a certain kind of broish straight man, the poodle sure. would be looked down upon, and the husky or the wolf wolven esque, right, uh, shaggier, right, but beautiful dog is more of the Gronk type or Helmsworth. <laughs> What's your upset? Where are you from? I'm from here. You are this studio. Then here why in so Brooklyn. much Gronk? I just think Gronk is a seems like you kind of an have idealized a, man. Bit to of a some boner for Gronk. <laughs> I've got a groaner. Yeah, <laughs> a groaner for exactly. Gronk. <laughs> in writing the book, so of the things you do, you do great stand up, and then you have written on Saturday Night Live, and you're the head writer with Amy Schumer. But it strikes me that those other forms of expression, you get feedback along the way. Right. Uh, obviously, you're not doing sketch comedy and when Saturday Night Live you are, but with Amy, you're not. There's no audience there for the sketch comedy, but there are mechanisms where you get feedback sure, along the yes, way or it doesn't air. 
the book's a little different. Yes. So how do you know if it works? You How don't. do you know if essays work? Um, you don't. Yeah. That is one of the scary things about writing a book is you're kind of mainly alone. I would send chapters off to um, my editor and my book agent, but it can be scary. You don't have that immediate feedback that you get in stand-up. And then you just kind of like press send and hope for the best. Yeah, but I was totally, when I was done, I was like, oh, maybe this sucks. A few of the essays, though, appear in other forms, like the one about your sister's wedding in Disney. I saw... A moth, or I heard a moth yeah, that you did that in was 2009. A long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then there is a couple that, in one way or another, at least some of the ideas show up as sketches on the show. Almost all of them were written as just original essays for the book. And maybe, you know, Amy and I, I think one of the reasons we got along creatively um, and otherwise is we share a lot of interests in terms of what we're interested in talking about. Mm-hmm. And so while there might be topics that ended up as sketches on the show, that's just sort of independent from something thematically similar in the book. That makes sense. I, I went back. I actually went back and watched the video of the uh, moth talk that you did about Disney. And I read along with it to see what the differences were. Yeah. There were two or three digressions yeah. about you and your family and the nerdiness thereof, for instance. That's not in, in the essay, though. The uh, idea is expressed elsewhere in the book. But – I think the big difference is when the audience is really reacting live, you could pile on two or three either additional jokes or a way to amplify Mm -hmm. the funniness of the moment. But with the writing, you have to pull back and just rely on, you know, having the one punchline land and then you move to the next. And I was wondering, you know, do you miss that? Do you miss the performative aspect of like, hey, this is working. I can embellish. I mean, writing has its own embellishment allowances um, insofar as, you know, with the moth um, and I've never been good at this, but you're supposed to be talking for 10 minutes yeah, uh, and they have a timer uh, and you are supposed to stop. And with the writing, you can kind of like as I was writing, something would tickle me and I would, you know, add a footnote, keep going, go on a tangent, add a parenthetical page. Um, in some ways, there's like more freedom with writing that you, if something seemed like, oh, this makes me laugh to myself, I would just kind of keep going. Stage time, usually somebody needs you to leave. <laughs> Do you think that Amy Schumer, the show, could exist without, hey, all the people went before her, but specifically Tina Fey? That's a sort of impossible question Mm -hmm. to answer. There's no doubt that Tina Fey um, is a giant, and we are lucky to be living at the same time as her. I think in the last 15 years... The fact that there are now so many more women as opposed to when I was growing up, I'm going to be 41. Yeah, there were almost no shows kind of from a woman's point of view. A few, I mean, like Carol Burnett. Um, there, Not to say there were none, but yeah. far fewer uh, than there are today. And it makes me really excited and happy that young women now turn on the TV and you have girls and you have Amy Schumer and Tina Fey and Amy Poehler all as women creating shows that are coming from their experience. The way I see it, if you look at evolution, right, there's the idea of punctuated equilibrium, which is normally, Ooh, here we go. That so was normal- a real casual throwout. <laughs> I don't know what that well, is. Well, here's, here's the deal. So when we think of evolution, we just think, oh, things change from one species to the next. But as Stephen Jay Gould and others will tell us, actually things go along and they don't change for a while and then 
boom, they change massively. And so, yeah, there was Carol Burnett and there was Joan Rivers. And you're right about how awesome she was. But to me, someone like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are this example of punctuated equilibrium where things speed up. There are a lot of reasons for it, but things change massively. And the way I think about it is there was always that really stupid debate, are women funny or women is funny? But maybe when we were young, you're three years younger than me. Maybe when we were young, we could offer forth a couple of examples. Sure, women are funny, but, you know, you could argue with Carol Burnett. Maybe you could argue with Lucille Ball as being a comedian. But then when Tina Fey became huge... And if someone ever said, well, women are funny, you say, why am I even talking to you? Not because you're sexist, but you don't think Tina Fey's funny. Like, she's obviously the funniest person going. <laughs> Amy Poehler might be the second. And now, you know, Amy Schumer's in the, on, on Mount Rushmore. I don't know. I just think it was <laughs> – I just think that it, it had – there was this massive change around that time. Yeah. I mean, it just uh... – I don't know about the punctuation of any of it. Um, all I know is that I feel really inspired and lucky to kind of be writing and creating at a time when these other incredible women are, are also doing it. Yes. Uh, there's one thing I want to ask you about the show. So four seasons in the can? Mm-hmm. Okay. So in the last season, did you step into more kind of weird, bizarre uh, humor than you had before. I love the 12 Angry Men extended parody. Was that three? Was that, that season was three? three? Yeah. yeah, so that was awesome. But there were a couple sketches last year, like with the parody of the, is it the AT&T commercial? Mm-hmm. Was that that perky yes. saleswoman? Then you have the director come in and kind of give voice to the to what actually is going on or maybe it's yeah. uh maybe it's the director being insane but i think the writers of that sketch were saying this is really what's going on excuse me i think my internet bill's too low too low that's a surprise my wife says i'm pretty unpredictable <laughs> no i'm in a surprise sale with a mobile c family plan we'll give you a surprise discount once a year as a way of saying thanks for making us your 4g wireless hotspot provider i didn't expect that surprise cut Okay. Steve, can I talk to you? Yeah. Have you seen these commercials? Steve, be honest with me. The Mobile City commercials? Any of them. Uh, Car commercials, uh, insurance, cell phones, prescription pills, whatever. In every one, you got a girl, right? A nice girl. We like the girl. The girl is the company. You can't flirt with a company, Steve. You can't f*** the company, huh? You don't have a shot. Okay, but you just said she's sexy. Not sexy. She's got an Oxford shirt on. She's beautiful. I love stuff like that. Oh, I love that sketch. Neil Casey, um, who plays the director in that, he came in with that sketch and he'd written it and... And it's so brilliant. And it seized as many great sketches do on this thing that, like, I had never really necessarily consciously noticed. But once he pointed it out, this trend of this kind of, like, timid, friendly, pretty, but not too sexy, just kind of, like, perfect female as the avatar of a corporation. So is that a is that a different direction or have you always or has the show kind of always embraced uh expression we've always all over embraced the place. it yeah. Yeah, yeah we like the weird stuff yeah i like the weird stuff too jesse klein is the author of you'll grow out of it she's the head writer of inside amy schumer thanks jesse thank you so much for having me it's excellent thank you thank you thank you And now the spiel. 
Shaking hands and kissing babies are the requirements of the politician, but Donald Trump is not the normal politician. In fact, he's just not normal. So Trump, reeling from his lack of a net convention bounce, bounced a baby today and not on his knee. No, from a rally. A rally in Virginia where a crying baby caught his attention and Trump behaved, well, like a warm, welcoming, fatherly figure. Don't worry about that baby. I love babies. I love babies. I hear that baby crying. I like it. I like it. What a baby. What a beautiful baby. Don't worry. Don't worry. The mom's running around like, don't worry about it, you know. It's young and beautiful and healthy, and that's what we want. Okay. But then the baby crossed the line. Maybe the baby questioned Trump's sacrifice. Maybe the baby pointed out that Trump's tax plan would add $11 trillion to the deficit over a decade. Maybe the baby turned out to have been an Atlantic City vendor to whom Trump owed money. Anyway, the baby got under Trump's skin and in doing so demonstrated, as with everyone who took Trump's pro-Russian hacking statements to mean that Trump was pro-Russian hacking, the baby did not get the subtlety of Trump's wit. The baby apparently could not tell that the hilarious Donald Trump was being sarcastic. Actually, I was only kidding. You can get the baby out of here. That's all right. Don't worry. I, I think she really believed me that I love having a baby crying while I'm speaking. That's okay. People don't understand. That's okay. It was Trump's own fault. Trump acted like the sarcastic concert goer who shouted Freebird. Then the band started playing Freebird. And oh, great, you got to sit through Freebird. Though when you really think about it, how could everyone in the audience not understand Trump was joking? I mean, he called something that actually is beautiful, beautiful. That's clearly a joke. When Trump's calling something beautiful, it's a golf course or an apartment he owns or this one time. It was about a baby, but it was about his baby's little tiny sexualized baby parts. She's really a beautiful baby, and she's, uh, she's, got, um, she's got Marla's legs. <laughs> we don't know whether or not she's got this part yet. The visual in that interview from Robin Leach in 1994 is Trump using his two hands to indicate the general chest region as relates to his infant daughters one day having Marla Maples' great chest. But don't worry, Tiffany and Donald, they're, they're all set now. Remember during the convention when Tiffany said that after a friend or family member died that her father gave her a phone call. So that's good. Also yesterday, there were other indications that Trump, like a true real estate maven, would not let any hole go undug because he weighed into the Fox News sexual harassment story. USA Today asked him what would he do if his daughter Ivanka were sexually harassed. He answered, quote, I would like to think she would find another career or find another company if that was the case, which is a reasonable response if this were the 16th century or Saudi Arabia or if we were casting a villain in the new season of Damages. But sexual harassment is actually not just a workplace bummer, like the coffee machine breaking or sitting directly under the AC vent. Little known fact, sexual harassment, it's actually a crime. It is against the law. And since Trump has vowed to restore law and order, chiefly, it would seem, by vowing to restore law and order, Trump ought to know this. But actually, in total, I'm kind of happy 
that Trump said this, that he thinks this, that he booted the baby, that he still thinks that someday, if he tries enough explanations, he'll come up with the really good reason why the Khan family is despicable. And the reason I'm fine with it, quite happy with it, in fact, is because he's losing, not by a lot, but by enough. The phenomenon of Trump, the popularity of Trump, has turned into a near total proxy for what I think about my fellow countrymen. Because I know that a lot of them are xenophobic or scared or distracted or easily led or not good critical thinkers. And I'm fine with that. That's what I already knew. A large part of America is like that. 40-something percent, but not the majority. And that is essential. Either I live in a country I get or I just get really confused. And right now, I am at a place of cognitive sonance. The Trump phenomenon is scanning as a farce, not a tragedy. And now get that crying baby out of here. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson loves the gentle cooing of a baby platypus. But the venom? Who needs the venom? It's out of here. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, always liked the compelling song structure of Anderson Buford, Wakeman, and Howe. But what? Chris Squire has rejoined the band? Disgusting! Sweaty Chris, get him out of here. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, loves sunsets, breezes, and the dripping of rain on the window pane. Ah, oh, will you knock off that racket with the rain? People believe me when I say I like raindrops? Raindrops are disgusting. The gist, ponder this question. What is the sound of one hand clapping? The answer, it's disgusting. It is a disgusting noise with the other hand just sitting there, not clapping, flapping around. See, in the good old days, this wouldn't happen. Get that other hand out of here. Oomperu, depperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.